This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by the new Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 Sport Bike Tire and Fly Racing. Hello, welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Gordo, obviously enough, we've had more technical issues than MV Augusto whenever they've had a, a superbike program in the past. We missed out on the last show from Hareth because of a problem on my side. We've had a few other issues as well since then, but uh, finally, we're getting everyone back up to date on World SBK, and there's a lot to get people up to date on as well, because I think it's fair to say, Gordo, for the first time in a very long time, World SBK is where it's at, and that's where people are interested, because I think it's fair to say we've got pretty much the best racing of anyone right now. We've got a championship battle unlike anything I've ever seen before. We've got Jonathan Ray against Top Rack Razgadioglu. There's only 24 points between them now at this stage, but there's nothing between them out on track. They're banging bars pretty much any opportunity they get. we got a nice bit of needle in the air after what's happened at the last races as well, and it's all setting up really nicely. No, it's, uh, it's great. The season's building. Um, it's been great all through. Um, we've seen that for lots of different reasons. Everybody's played the most. Um, everybody's had their either bad luck or bad judgment, um, lost points. Um, we've seen people who don't normally crash, like Jonathan, crashing just because he's having to ride so hard. Um, and it's actually problems. So he's losing points that way. Um, and everybody, the, the, the rules are great in this class. And almost all the manufacturers are right there. Even Honda are moving forward. And we saw that BMW getting a podium at the weekend. So even the stuff that's on slightly the outside of the immediate battle for first, second and third is still moving in the right direction, which bodes even better for the future because it's been a great season and I don't see the way. Obviously enough, Gordo, we have it where you're on the road. I'm back in Ireland now before heading off to Argentina. So we're doing this on Zoom, but whereabouts are you right now? I'm in a hotel near Skipper Air in Amsterdam. Um, arrived here very late last night, actually this morning, about 1.30. On the road all day, same as I was the day before, um, which has been fun and uh, not fun all at the same time. an experience. Um, and yeah, heading, just coming back to head home to Scotland tomorrow. You're in Schiphol. Just, it's almost as if David Emmett could uh, make a wee trip down to you, see what it takes to actually organise a test ride for a bike, get himself out there as well, Gordo. I have, I've, I've heard David's um, been talking about it. Um, all I can say, David, is just, I did it in my own bike last year. I've done it in a borrowed bike this year. I very kindly got loaned a Kawasaki to do it this year, which is why I'm back here returning it and then flying home tomorrow. Yes, uh, it should be done. Uh, you don't need to do, I think I was going to do six races. I ended up doing five, which was a lot better. It's a lot of time away from home. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that should be done. It's how people used to go to races in the past as punters. Um, and, uh, you know, I've just done it in the last couple of years for expediency because of COVID reasons, for lots of reasons. But it's also a wee ambition achieved both last year and this year. And I can highly recommend it to anybody. It's harder, but it's it's more rewarding at the end when you get everything done. Well, I'll tell you what, Gordo, it's been a pretty hard couple of weeks on the road for you. Obviously, we've had Catalonia, we've had Hareth, and we've had the last round in Portimao. I think... Obviously, we had done, we'd recorded a show about Hareth and the big talking point in Hareth was the reminder of just how dangerous the sport can be, the realities of close pack racing, the realities of what can happen out on track. And we, we saw that with Dean Vinales and we talked a lot about this on the show that we, we weren't able to actually air because of the technical issues. But just to talk briefly about it again, we saw 
in Coda in the Moto 3 class, a big crash. Obviously, we saw what happened in the Super Sport 300 class. But in Portimao, we also saw a, a look at how race direction are going to try and approach things going forward. We saw them red flag the Super Pole session for riders cruising around waiting for a tow. And it looks like we're going to have more and more of those kind of penalties going forward. Which is what's required. It's been what's required for a long time. Um, there's been any number, every race, every session, there's examples of riding which is not the kind of riding you should be taking forward into your career. If that class is a learning class, if it's a class to build yourself, um, there has to be a lot more um, a lot more restriction on out-of-order riding, not riding, making a, a hard pass or whatever. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about things that are not acceptable and wouldn't be acceptable in... 600 or Superbike or MotoGP or Moto2 that just wouldn't be allowed. Um, it's very difficult to steward it, I understand that. Um, there's far too many people in the races, for my, in my opinion, which also brings its own problem. You can't keep an eye on 42 people, 38 people as easily as you can on 25 or 30. Um, uh, but there has to be consequence that doesn't involve somebody getting hurt or worse, as we saw. Um, the accident, the, the the fatal accident that happened, the tragedy that happened, um, was not anything to do with that. I understand it was just a crash and then the, the consequence of riders being behind. But in general, everybody is talking about 300s for reasons that are not good. And it's just, it appears to be the same from everything you see in Moto3. So there has to be intervention. There has to be a change, not for the sake of it, not because something's happened, but there has to be a change because it's obviously been too wild too uncontrolled, people making passes. It seems to be the way that if I'm going to get past them, I'm going to have to do six people at once or I'm going to pass somebody and not care what happens behind me. That's not acceptable racing. It's not acceptable in any class anywhere. Um, and it does seem to be, unfortunately, what is being taken away by people who race in those classes. And we saw a week after that accident, the stewards haven't he give the riders a, a, a complete rebel shellacking, quite rightly, um, for just going out and waiting for a tow and all the things they've been told not to do. If they can't learn to do it themselves, take them out of it. They, none of those individuals need to be there. You know, they can get somebody else that would break the rules. As simple as that. Cordo, obviously in the 300 class, just because the season's finished, it's worth just looking at how the year progressed. And I think this year we did see that there are talented riders in the class that were able to consistently stay at the front, weren't out there always looking for a toe, weren't out there just trying to work with anyone else. In, in a field that I think there was probably over 50 riders took part this year, there was probably five or six that showed themselves to be good riders that should be able to progress onto a super sport bike, should be able to use 300s as the stepping stone that it should be. But when you look at a field that typically at most rounds has had 42 or 44 riders on the grid, you look at it and you think, would it make a big difference if we got rid of the last 15 of those and we had 30 rider grid? Because when I look at that class, I see guys like Adrian Huertes, like Adrian was 17 for most of this season and came in, was winning races right from the start of the year, was consistent all the way through the season, won the world championship. You know, he's 18, he's going to jump on a super sport bike next year, you'd imagine. And, you know, you'd imagine he's going to do quite well. Same as someone like Jeffrey Bowes, the world champion from last year. He's done well this year to be able to win a lot of races, finish third in the championship. Samuel Desara came through and really showed that, you know, there's quality riders that don't get the opportunities on a Moto3 style bike, 
but can actually show that they've got good talent and hopefully will be able to progress on. Safoglu was impressive again this year. Tom Boothamus is a rider that's got a lot of experience and he's, you'd imagine, going to be on a, a super sport bike next year as well. Yes, um, and that is true. It is throwing up some talent. That's exactly what it's designed to do. The problem is that everywhere else in the future, and, and I'm not saying there aren't talented riders who finish further down um, most weeks. The reason being is that you get stuck in the wrong group. If you get overtaken at the wrong time, you break the toe, and there's no way to get back to the people in front unless it's Marquez, and, and that's the problem. Um, good riders can't show what they can do when they get stuck in a group behind, when somebody runs them off track, they can't recover, they can't then show what they do. Um, that's the problem with class. The good thing in the class is that it is throwing up these talents, wherever they come from, whether they started off in another single mate championship or whatever, whether they started in national racing, it's 300s has very much got its place. I was a big fan of it. I thought it was a logical step. There's some logical steps need to be taken in that class. When the COVID situation is over, we need to start going to the countries to actually sell lots and lots of those 300s in, which will be more expensive, obviously, trying to take a lot of bikes. So there's another reason to cut the field down to a normal 30, 25, whatever, is we have to start taking these play- these bikes to places to sell them before we ever start going to Asia again and so on. Um, the, it, it's a great class that, that isn't turning out the way it was supposed to at the moment. But as relatively cheap racing goes and getting yourself in the shop window if you've got talent, that's good. The trouble is there's lots of good riders who will not get a chance to show because they've been knocked off four times, they've been run wide twice. They're just not going to get themselves up the top of the championship. But as you say, I think Desora is the perfect example um, because he really did show himself more or less up the front all the time and ended up winning the race at the end of the year. This is the way it's supposed to be in that class. All the other negative stuff can be sorted out by reduction numbers, by and especially age thing. It's a world championship. Don't let kids ride in it. It's a world championship. Bring the kids through in other forms of racing when there is as much pressure on them and put them in the world championship at whatever age you decide is acceptable, 16, 17, 18. It, it, all those can pass for an adult in most countries of the world. But 14, 15, I'm not keen on that either. So there's a few things you can do right away there to, for next year. But... You know, we've obviously had a very dark day at RF, um, but there's also a lot of things to look at in that class and think, right, this is this is nearly there. It just needs tweaking. Obviously, Gordo, before we move on to talk about Portimao, I just want to talk pretty quickly about Supersport as well, because you're in Tenkade land at the minute, yes. and uh, they've got the chance of wrapping up their first world championship in a long time, in uh, a week's time down in Argentina. Yeah, and I mean, it's fantastic to see Tinkata back. I mean, I'm a journalist, I don't care who wins, I genuinely don't. It's not up to me. I'm there to tell people what happened and get an insight into what's happening behind the scenes. Um, but Tinkata are an integral part of this championship since they first turned up on the Supersport bikes all those years ago. They've won nine world championships. It looks like they're probably going to add the 10th this year. They're done in a different manufacturer. Um, they've had to go away and come back again from almost from scratch. Um, it's a good news story all round if they do win the World Championship. It's a good news story whoever wins the World Championship. Um, what I was what I was quite impressed by, and I thought it was it was a nice twist at the end of the year, was the fact that Odendal just looked like he was going down, 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 and he fought back really hard at the weekend. Um, and I thought that was good because it could have been all over arithmetically. It could have been all over last weekend, but it wasn't. So they go again to the next one at least and. That was a nice wee twist in the tail. We're having other manufacturers getting podiums. Um, it's still basically Yamaha's winning, 
because that's the most modern and the most race-oriented and youngest bike. Um, but everybody's getting a look in depending on the racetrack. Um, now we're about to change the rules in Supersport. I hope they maintain that. That's the next thing is not to change what Superbike is, but to change it to keep the competitive nature of the races that we have at the minute because it's fantastic racing. Even if most of the bikes are Yamaha, you're still seeing the MVs and the Kawasaki's in there. And that's what we want. We want to see every brand and a, and a class that people can do if they just can't get the budget or whatever, they do go Superbike. Um, but Supersport could have a great future as long as they handle it properly in the next few weeks, few months and few years. Yeah, because obviously we've got Ducati coming back next year, other manufacturers potentially coming back on the grid as well. I think it's an exciting time for the Supersport class. And it's good because this year has actually been a really good year for Supersport. You know, you mentioned Odendal. He's come back on form last time out in Portimao. That was great to see. Manuel Gonzalez has shown himself to be a star of the future. It'll be interesting to see if he does move to Moto2 like it looks like. Otherwise, he's going to finish third in the World Championship, you'd imagine, this year. Shows the progress he's made. Ertl's done a good job. Looks like he might be on a superbike next year on an Arlac Kawasaki. Cluzel, Luca Bernardi. We've had uh, Caracasulo as well, obviously a front runner in the past. So there's depth in the class. Krumenacker. There's a lot of good riders there. Rafa de Rosa's come on form lately. You know, we didn't have this excitement in the super sport class for a long time. So it's good to see what could be coming in the future as well. Gordo, we're going to be taking a break on uh, the show in a couple of minutes time. But I wanted just before we take a break to look at another general topic in the world SBK paddock. And that's Garrett Gerloff. Because just before we, we sat down to record, there was the news announced that himself and Les Pearson, his crew chief, have split. Les leaving the GRT Yamaha squad. Definitely doesn't look like this was a decision made by Gerloff or by Pearson. This looks like a decision that was made by Yamaha in general. And it's a strange one from the outside, but what's your reading on it? Uh, Well, I haven't had a chance to speak to either of those parties, so I'm working blind, as it were. But I think, ultimately, there's somebody's decided there must be a change because the results aren't acceptable considering where they were. Um, we're not even in a situation like this is the first year and the results haven't quite been what you expected. We've seen what Les and Garrett can do together on the Yamaha. It's not happening. Maybe that's fueled even more frustration because they, they think, well, hold on, we, we were podiuming in what seems like five minutes ago and, and now we're not anymore. Um, Garrett's looked a bit lost for a long time and very upset with himself, probably too hard on himself, to be honest. Uh, I'm not an agony ant, but if I had any, and far be from me to advise anybody on anything, but I think Garrett needs to stop beating himself up as much and just worry about the job in hand. But it might explain why he's been so unhappy the last couple of races in particular, if maybe there's been a wind of this. You know, that's what I'm thinking. As I say, I haven't spoken to either of the parties involved because I've been on the road since, uh, since the end of the race weekend. Um, but I think it's, as you say, it's probably been forced on people. Yes, you can't imagine why they would break that up. Um, but I, I don't see any reason internally why that would happen. So it's obviously something from outside, I suppose. And it's a shame, whatever else, whatever the reasons are, it's a shame because that partnership was a kind of rebirth for Les and his role and all his experience. Um, and look at what's happening when Garrett's such an exciting rider and, and you know, very, very exciting to watch and an American we need a fast American in the championship so whatever's happened with this hopefully there will be an improvement for all parties concerned in the future even if they've gone their separate ways yeah I do think it's one of those situations where everyone in the paddock wants to see Gerloff succeed 
you know, when you're looking at it from a marketing perspective, you want to have an American writer that does well. When you're looking at it from just a talent perspective, he's clearly a really good writer. He showed that up until Aston this year, but he's also clearly shown that he's been read the riot act by Yamaha and he hasn't been able to put it behind him. And whether that's down to, and there are, you know, rumors around the paddock that Yamaha basically told him, if you have another incident with a rider, that's it. You're sitting for the rest of the year. And a racer can't go out with that mentality and do as good a job as they need to do. Gerloff's clearly been impacted by that. He's obviously, like you said, Gordo, had to deal with a lot of criticism. He's had to deal with how he can approach that. And he struggled how to deal with it. And I'd love to see him come through this and have a good end to the season. I don't think it's too likely considering we've had six rounds where he's had good pace and practice sessions. But once he's in a race situation, struggles at the start of the race, tries to keep himself out of trouble and then gradually comes back into it as the race progresses. I think it could well be a case of we're going to have a full reset over the winter. Hopefully he comes back next year as the Garrett Gerloff we saw at the start of the year. But uh, until then, it's it's one of those situations where for Yamaha, making this change could well be a case of them clearly saying, right, it hasn't worked right now. We need to do something different. And that's nothing about the job that Les has done because he's clearly done a good job. The bike's been able to work really well. But it's not always just about making the bike work well. It's about making the bike and rider work really well. And I think when you look at, you know, Phil Maron and Toprak Razgadioglu, when you look at Pereba and Jonathan Ray, the crew chief's job is to get the bike in order, but it's also clearly to work with the rider. And the mental side of racing is so important as well. And, you know, we'll wait and see whether or not this this change works because it'll be interesting to see who Gerloff ends up working with in Argentina for one thing anyway. Yeah, that's the immediate thing we need to, uh, needs to be uh, seeing how that turns out, whoever he ends up with. Um, I think the most important thing you touched on there is the psychology side of things um, in terms of the relationship between a crew chief and his rider. When you get that relationship, it becomes much more than just a technical thing. It's not a feedback loop. You actually, I, I have the, the kind of joy of interviewing a few people recently about this job. Um, and I spoke to Andrew Pitt and basically he said when he, when he was racing Australia and he had Pete Doyle as his crew chief, he wanted to please him. He wanted to go out and do well. He wanted to f- come in and feel that he'd justify the, all the confidence and effort that had been put into him personally back to his crew chief. He wanted to please him. He wanted to make him as happy as he, he made himself happy by winning races and, and doing well. Um, I think there's you can make such a, a difference to your overall performance by getting that father confessor, technical guru, confidence builder, you name it all together in one person, in one package. And when it goes well, you, you don't break things up. When it's going badly, sometimes it's the best for both people to involved to, to make a change. Um, but it is a massively underestimated. Um, it's a very, very important job, a creative, because as you say, it's not just technical. I think that's the biggest thing we can take away. Um, what, in, what other influences? There's obviously stuff going on behind the scenes uh, inside that team that we don't know about. Um, which we'll find out in the films of time. Yeah, when it's working well, Gordo, you keep it together. When it's not working well, you take that break. So uh, with that in mind, we're going to take an ad break on the Paddock Pass podcast. And when we come back, we'll look at the action from Portimao. The Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the newest addition to the popular Diablo Rosso family and is specifically designed for sport bike, hyper-naked, and crossover motorcycles. 
giving riders a superior level of grip. The Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 gives precise feedback and control in both wet and dry conditions, raising the benchmark for high-performance sport tires on the road. Available in a wide range of sizes, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the culmination of nearly 20 years of testing and R&D in the factory, on the roads, and on the track with World Superbike. Visit your local dealer or online retailer and pick up a set today. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And Gordo, we've looked at 300 Supersport and then the overall look at Yamaha and Garrett Gerloff. Now we finally get to go into the nitty gritty of last weekend in Portimao. We'll talk a little bit about Hareth as well. We'll just blend the last two rounds together. But Jonathan Ray versus Top Rack Razgadioglu, it's gotten a little bit spicy over the last couple of rounds. Yeah, it's uh, beginning to get personal because um, there's so much at stake. Uh, obviously, the two riders that involved, the three riders actually, because uh, Scott Reddy is quite happy that you get his uh, tongue out and lash people with it when he feels like it, much to everyone's amusement. Um, um, it's, a, it's a side of racing we haven't seen that much. We've had the odd fallout with Johnny and a few of his rivals in the past. But this is, uh, this is proper. This is the real deal. This is the world championship at stake. Um, and it's great, you know, it's not quite two boxers uh, bad-mouthing each other before they get, do the kind of weigh-in contest, but it's, yeah, there's a bit of barb going on. We saw, example, for example, uh, Top Rack going, jumping off the bike and cleaning a bit of the, the green track limits thing, which was obviously a dig towards Kawasaki and Jordan about uh, him being pinged by them to race control in Aston, which was... Uh, which was funny when we saw it. And then when Johnny won that final race, uh, he stopped in the same bit of tarmac and did a big burnout and made it dirty again. So that those two things are obviously messages to each other. And there is a bit of spice going on in the in the verbals and the the we're getting the benefit of it in the media debriefs um, after the races and sessions when they're talking about each other. They haven't. Uh, I don't think they've uh, declared open warfare in each other, but on track, and certainly off track, things have, have turned up a notch, but everything's at stake. It would be difficult to, for it not to, you know? And, and Gordo, I think that's the big thing, is that there is a world championship to be won, which also means there's a world championship to be lost. And when you look at Ray and Razgadioglu, they've both put themselves in a position to win this championship. Obviously, Scott Redding is still there with a chance of it, but it's a very limited chance at this stage with only two rounds to go. Scott just wants to be able to sign off the season on a high... I think he did that last week in Portimao, three second place finishes. He was right there all the way through. But I thought what was probably the most interesting thing from the weekend was that on Saturday's race, Reading was pretty clear that he was angry with the way that the that the racing has evolved over the course this year. He said on Sunday he was just going to go in there and not take any shit. And he was going to attack Top Rack. He was going to give Top Rack back exactly what he gets. Johnny said the same thing as well. So we've got three riders now really very keen to ride each other as hard as possible. Tom Prack said all the way through this season, this is how I ride, I'm not going to change for anyone. But now the other two guys are looking at it, well, maybe they need to make a bit of a change. And I think it's more, much more of a change for Scott Redding than it is for Ray, because Ray's not afraid of getting the elbows out. He's shown that all the way through this season. I think the big thing between, the battle between Ray and Razgadioglu is that both of them are really similar to one another. They attack at the first opportunity. They have a lot of confidence in their own ability not to clash with someone. And that's where you end up almost on a, on a not so much a collision course, but where both riders are at that exact same point at the same time. Yes. I mean, they're very different riding styles. Um, obviously, Top Rack's an amazing outbreaker and late breaker. It's what he does. It's, it's 
you can outbreak them. And but when someone does, they deserve to get a wee medal pinned on them because it's a very, very difficult guy to pass. Um, and that's the way he's been, he trains, that's the way he's been brought up, that's the way he's, things are. It's very frustrating. Uh, Marco Melandri used to get a lot of spray from other riders because the way he passed, he would always pass very late, going into a corner, which made the other rider have to kind of chop. Um, what Top Rider's doing is basically just going for every gap. Sometimes they want to say, sometimes they want it's not there. Every rider made has made a block pass on their rivals. Um, top rack uh, does go in places other people wouldn't, but it's because he can. I think half the problem with that is that the other riders aren't expecting it because the way they are, the bike set up, whatever, they probably couldn't do it, certainly not the way he does. So they're not expecting that kind of attack. Um, and also, you know, the, the bikes work differently. Even though the Yamaha and the Kawasaki are four cylinders, they do actually work differently. They've got different strengths and weaknesses. So the riders are forced in a certain way of riding. Um, I think it's easier for Top Rack to run interference on Johnny's ideal lines than it is for Johnny to do it back to him. And it must be very frustrating. So I think that's part of the reason why. But I, but we've moved on a little bit to the people just thinking about that, you know, a lot of this is unnecessary. That's what Reading and Ray have been saying. It's not required. Um, but Top Rack's saying that's the only way he knows. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how the sleeves get rolled up. I just want it to be this side of the line it's very important especially given what's happened at, you know in previous races we do not want to end up with everybody in the kitty litter we want everybody to end up finishing the races we want the races to be as hard as you like but hard there is a difference between hard and dirty and i think that's it all those three rounds have got a different interpretation between hard and getting a little bit towards dirty um and it's up to the stewards and everybody else again the the, the people who we were speaking about quite a lot now to make sure it doesn't go over the line. But very difficult when, when everything's at stake, and we've seen this all through the history of motorsport, when everything's at stake, people will take chances they might not take any other time. So, yeah, we're in, we're in for a bit of a, I think we really are in for a bit of a scrap. I think if that first race on Sunday in Portugal hadn't been wet, we might have seen a lot more fireworks in a 10-lap race than we did. Because it was wet, it didn't turn out and Johnny crashed, it, it didn't transpire. Let's look at it, Gordo, as well, though, in, in the case of the laps before Ray's crash in race one, the laps before Top Rack's crash in race yeah. two. We just saw riders that were willing to just put it down the inside of each other, especially Top Rack. We saw some really late moves down the inside. But the other side of that coin as well is you could look at it and say the precedent's been set all the way through this season, that that is how they're going to have to ride. I think when we look at what happened in the Super Bowl race in Catalonia, you know, we saw you know Ray making some late moves on top rack in that race. That's how they've been going through the whole season. And it's it's difficult to really take yourself outside of that and see why it's different over the course of the last few rounds with how the riders are feeling about top rack. Because I think all the way through this season, especially from say Navarra onwards, we've seen it where anytime there's been a chance to gain the upper hand on your rival. Both Ray and Razgadioglu have taken it. We saw it obviously in in Most with Reading and Razgadioglu, where Toprak made his move to take the race victory from Reading. Scott was upset about that, and from the outside, everyone's watching it, saying, "You know what? It's it's a move that's there to be made." Are we going to get to the stage where it's just going to take a crash between the riders for them to to make a change to their approach? Uh, possibly, but I think. There's certainly been a lot of tactile action. Um, and again, 
the riders are experienced enough to know when the, the ultimate risk for that is and when it's a little bit safer to do it and and on. But it's racing is too unpredictable. When everybody's racing that close to the edge, um, one little thing causes a chain reaction. Um, we certainly don't want to see these guys taking each other out uh, because it's going to spoil the championship. Forget anything else. Um, so yeah, I think there needs to be a little two percent down on that because you're still going to you're still left with ninety eight percent of who's and as constantly through the race. Um, yeah, it's it's just a fine it's a fine line between what's acceptable and what isn't. So far, there hasn't been any official uh, input to say no, no, that's too much. Um, and there hasn't been any real silliness. Um, but it is winding up. I mean, we talk about it a lot because the, the riders are talking about it now and it's in the, in the public domain. But the riders are always going to ride hard. When the World Championships is taken and there's fewer points to claw back, people are going to start getting a bit more uh, desperate to get the points they need to get or defend, especially when they're losing points. When they're losing points either through falls or technical problems, it's not the right, you know, it's the rider's fault if he falls, but if he's been forced in the ride a certain way and, and that means it's going to be more possibility to fall, then the rider's going to feel it's, you know, he has to do that. If it's a technical thing, how frustrating must that be, you know, to say, well, I, I need to make those points back. Um, but yeah, I mean, the space is great. It's, it's, I mean, it's great that they're all having a bit of verbals with each other, but I just don't want it to cross the line um, because the sport's dangerous enough. We don't need any more danger. The thrills and the excitement and the close action and the elbows and stuff, great. As long as everybody involved is is staying the right side of the line. As I said earlier, I think it's just that all three riders are, are going to have a different interpretation of what is the line. Just uh, when we got, look at race one, for instance, Gordo, we saw, I think it's fair to say, a real red mist come down on Jonathan Ray in that race and caution was thrown to the wind and then we saw the crash as well. And uh, obviously it was, it was a bit strange that we saw Toprak and Ray have the same crash or crashed the same point. Obviously, very different reasons. Jonathan had his own crash. Toprak obviously had the fender issue. But uh, you know, that opening race, I think it was fair to say that we saw a lot of times where Ray was right on the limit. We saw feet off the peg. We saw a few big moments down in towards turn one. And then we saw the crash. Yeah. Uh, Johnny felt he was getting beaten up and what, all the good work he was doing was being negated by other people. Um a certain blue bike. Uh, so that's why he was so frustrated and ended up making a mistake by going into the, that final corner a bit too hot. Um, he's, he admits that. It's not my opinion. He's he's already said what happened in that crash. But he felt he had to get away. Um, he just maybe chose the wrong point to do it, to try and get away in front uh, at the start of the straight, where he was obviously losing quite a bit to both riders. Um, there was behind him. The, the issue... For Jonathan in the second race was doing taking his chances to try and get away from the riders behind in a different place. That's what he, he planning to do in race two. That's what he did wrong in, in the first long race. And obviously, he, he, again, he just took too much break in the, the Super Bowl race and crashed in that as well. So, yes, it shows the frustration and it shows that Johnny's rattled. People have been saying it on social media all week and they're absolutely right. Johnny's been rattled by the season Moy has. Um, he's a pretty cool customer. Uh, he's not quite as laid back as Top Rack, who's the most laid back person in the room at any one time, um, except when he gets on the bike. Um, but yes, frustrations breeds mistakes, and that's what was wrong with Jonathan. And, and he said that himself in both cases when he crashed at the weekend. It was frustration, it was misjudgment, but because he had to feel he had to do something, he had to react to something that was being done to him. 
Um, and that, and he ended up losing all those points. I think if we had Sunday, Saturday, Sunday all over again, Jonathan would have a very different uh, approach to the weekend and we would have a much closer championship fight. Obviously enough, Gordo, um, we saw over the course of the weekend that Ray had two crashes. We saw the crash as well on Sunday in the Super Bowl race. And again, this was fairly typical wet weather crash for him, but he did get that get out of jail free card with winning race two and Toprak having his technical issue. Yeah, I mean, there's still a gap in the championship, which is significant enough when you've got six races left, but there's 124 points left, I think, um, right now. And Jonathan's 20-something behind, so it, nothing's impossible. It's nothing's impossible for Reading, by the way, because I seem to remember a certain guy dressed in red coming back in Sugo one year to win the World Championship when he was third. I think he was at least third in the championship going in. Yeah, I think he was third. And nobody fancied it and he ended up being a champion. So nothing's done yet. Let's not draw that out too far. Uh, but ultimately, uh, yes, it would be they were much closer championship if there hadn't been mistakes and whether that's team mistakes or, or rider mistakes. Um, but there's a lot to play for yet. Uh, and to get out of the jail card, I think that's exactly right. We saw the relief in the faces, the tears rolling down the faces of Kawasaki guys who still believe in. Um, I think if something bad had happened in the Johnny's points total in that final race or top rank, you'd just beaten them by two places, then people with the heads were really starting going down. But you saw that little fire being restarted again in the Kawasaki camp because Johnny full scored and top rank no scored. Um, and it is a team game. You know, it's, it's Kawasaki and KRT versus Yamaha, Pati Yamaha with bricks. It's a team game as well as a rider game. So that's another element of the space that's coming into it. And they're now looking at being in competition with each other as much as um, anybody else is on, the actual riders are on track. Did it surprise you, Gordo, to see how the weekend transpired? Yes. Uh, and and how much it meant to Kawasaki to have picked up that win? Uh, it didn't surprise me in the circumstances after seeing the results of the first two races, the, the first race in the Super Bowl race. Um They've been through Teams are very tight and that team's been together with the same personnel on that side of the garage for seven years now. They've won six world championships together. They've had a, the disaster season when Bautista was on a Ducati and absolutely hammered them for the first half of the year, nearly half of the year. Um, but they still, because Johnny was finishing second, 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 third, second, second, they never lost touch in the championship. We're in exactly the same situation but at a very different point in the year and so on. Everybody understands what it's at stake. Can you just put yourself in somebody's position of you've been world champion with the same person for six years and you're still in the fight now? You probably wouldn't be in the fight if that race had gone a different way, even if Top Rack had been second. All those people that were crying in Pit Lane and crying in the Park Fermi and, you know, Perry Reba walking down the, 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 the Pit Lane towards Park Fermi, just in tears, you know, he's a tough little nut, he's an ex-racer, he's a tough little guy, Perry, um, and he's bawling his eyes out, being consoled by the the much younger uh, female tyre technician that KRT's got on board this year. That was a, that was a very, very big uh, sort of transposition, transformation from what you might expect to be in the in the, in the old days. Um, and it was, I mean, it was very effective to see that they take it that seriously. You know, none of that's, none of that was put on, I don't think. I think that's all genuine. They still know that they're in it and it was done because their boy pulled one out of the bag after having thrown a couple into the kettle at earlier. So yeah, I think it's, um, I think Johnny's been the reason that they've been winning so much 
finally, and they keep saying it, it's all down to Johnny, that was Johnny, that was Johnny. And he did it for them again. I think that's where the dynamic was. And when we saw those guys and girls are so emotional as they were on the weekend. And Gordo, obviously enough as well, we saw in both Jerez and in Portimao just the impact that it could potentially have in the championship that Kawasaki were left with only Ray on the grid. We saw obviously in previous rounds, we've started to see Ray and Alex Lowe's work together. We saw in the Super Bowl session in Jerez, they worked together really well, both of them put it on the front row of the grid. So it looks like those two sides of the box are starting to work much more in tandem. They can see that you do have to work as a team. It's too competitive now. Yamaha work as a team the whole time. But obviously for Kawasaki with Lowe's having his injury, his hand injury, and being ruled out of contention on the Sunday in Hareth, and then not being able to race in Portimao at all, that it's going to be really important for the last two rounds that he's as close to full fitness as he can be, so that he's able to help Ray as well. Yeah, I mean, Alex has been a, a, uh, had a very tough season after last year's first uh, COVID-affected season with everything been piled up together, all the races together. Um, obviously, he was expecting, like like everybody else in Kawasaki Colours, to have an extra few revs. He tested all winter with an extra few revs and then didn't get them for the season starting. So it didn't start very well. Um, but Lowe's has put in some great performances. The trouble is he's been injured quite a lot, um, more than once and in more than one area of his body. So that's going to have an effect on someone. It's a big loss for Kawasaki because Jonathan probably does need a help now. Um, if, for his, even for example, Tobrak is a bad tyre choice or whatever, maybe Lowe's would be second or third. Now there's no Kawasaki realistically going to be in that position unless Alex is back and fully fit. So there's another few points that can help, one for the positive total for the teams in the, in the Manufacturers' Championship, but also literally for the, the, the Riders' Championship. We've seen this and other championships decided by team riding or not lots of times. Even in the last 10 years, we've seen a fair bit of that. Um, so don't underestimate the, the importance of teams. And going back to what you said about Kawasaki and working together, technically and behind the scenes, all that stuff pulled and then put together for both riders' benefit, even if they totally disagree with each other on how it set things up. But there's a certain amount of work that doesn't have to be done because the other guy says, no, don't worry about that, that's not working, whatever. Um, I think the the... Two sides of the Kawasaki box are obviously we know very well are incredibly competitive against each other, but they do behind the scenes understand that they, they help each other as much as they can and then go racing on Saturday, Sunday. But the rest of it does seem to be quite collaborative. Certainly in the last the last couple of races of Kawasaki have had a lot more. Um, but yeah, I think they work together uh, behind the scenes quite well. But the Yamaha thing is much more openly kind of um, collegiate and cooperative. Uh, but I think there's more of that in Kawasaki than we think until we get to the racetrack and actually on the line and then it's <laughs> every man for himself yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it works now when we get to those final rounds of the year and see if it makes a big impact. Gordo, we're going to take a break on the Paddockcast podcast when we come back we're going to wrap up the rest of the action from Portimao Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, Gordo, we're just going to finish up with what we saw in Portimao. And I think one of the big stories, obviously, V for victory for Van der Mark on the BMW and BMW's first win in the class in a very long time. And I think this was where we saw the realisation of all the work that's gone into the project for both BMW, for Sean Muir Racing, and then for everyone behind the scenes. Yes. I mean, I can't tell you how much of a morale booster that win will be for those guys. It's It's been a bit of a schlep for those guys with the new bike. Uh, again, we're still not in normal circumstances, so testing and, and developing and stuff is not easy to do. Uh, they've had lots of technical issues this year. They've had lots of niggling things going wrong. Uh, they've made changes inside the team to try and uh, affect those kind of things. Um, and some of them have worked and some of them are probably in the process of working but just haven't been instigated enough yet. And obviously a lot of races back to back. It's been a bit of a, for everybody, but especially those with a new bike and enough differences to call it new, it's been a much more difficult year. So that the relief is one thing. The the boss was in town, Dr. Schramm, the boss of uh, the head of BMW Motorrad, was there to see it all happening and then to see the other technical issues they had as well. So that's a good thing that he's seen the good and the bad. Um, so the people are telling him things week to week, he's seen what they're talking about. Um, yeah, we need everybody to win. A really good championship is where everybody's got a chance of winning. It may only be at certain tracks and it may only be at certain riders' favourite tracks or whatever. But um, and it may have needed the wet weather, but hey, the wet weather's a leveller. And that level went for Michael Vandermar. Um, BMW's had a tough time. Tom's obviously been injured recently. He's done some amazing performances. Uh, and, the, and then the bike breaks down or the setup's wrong. There's still a fundamental issue at the back of that BMW going into corners, turning, keeping the line. All the riders, no matter whether it's the factory riders, private riders, they all say the same thing. So they're still having to work on that. In the wet, obviously those forces are massively reduced. Therefore, the bike's not, it's, it's not exhibiting that problem that's caused all the riders various hassles through the year. It's an improving project, it's a developer project, it's certainly very well resourced and should be, continue to be. The one thing they are quite determined to do is to keep going and keep uh, improving and building. Um, and again, the Yamaha, which is now seen by most people as the best, most rounded bike to be on every weekend, uh, wasn't like that for quite a while. Uh, it took a lot of work to get that Yamaha there, but it didn't take a revolution. It took a it takes a series of steps forward to then all of a sudden one day, all right, the bike's got no real bad weak points anymore. Therefore, the riders get in this much more rideable than it was. So therefore, the riders could go and ride it. And guess what? You know, they 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 could make a. Uh, you know, they're now top of the tree. BMW has got every reason to feel that they've got the potential to be the next bike that makes a step up between them and the Honda. The Honda's shown signs as well. So, yeah, no, it, it was fantastic to see BMW get a win because I want to see everybody winning. I, I don't care who wins, but I would like to see everybody winning, if that makes any sense. It's definitely a lot easier, Gordo, to see people winning whenever there's the resources put in to develop a new bike, an all-new package, a very visually distinguishable difference from last year to this year for the BMW. When you see them go out and spend the money to bring in a Michael van der Mark, spend the money to bring in uh, Scott Redding for next season as well, they're leaving no stone unturned. And that's exactly what you need to see if you want to get involved in a project like that. I think it's fair to say that when the news came out that Scott Redding was signing for BMW, it was met with a lot of derision. It was met with, why would he look to leave 
Ducati. Obviously, there's a lot goes into it behind the scenes in terms of why a rider would make that decision. But it's also a lot easier to see what the potential is in a project whenever you have a result like this. It might have been wet weather conditions that were able to give Vandermark that opportunity in Portimao. But from, you know, lap two onwards, it was Vandermark's race to lose. And he went out and he was able to get the job done. Yes. Um, and yeah, the, the the BMW has obviously got enough in it to, to be able to go and, and win races. There's not there's no problem there. The resources, the 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 why did Michael why did Michael Vandermark go and ride BMW? Well, that's still a question that most a lot of people will be asking themselves. But I can think of twelve different things, but let's concentrate on one. He saw a top rack coming. Maybe Yamaha were going to end up favouring top rack, and he would be the guy who, like Alex Lowe's, was let go from a team, even though he was getting podium results and uh, the kind of results a factory rider would expect in an era when one rider's dominating. Um, so maybe he was thinking, well, hold on, I might be next. I don't want to be left with nothing. And you then see this new BMW resource. He's, he's told me a couple of times this year, he's, when he looked at what they were willing to put into it and the fact that if you're a rider, you can mould that bike in your shape not another person's shape. If you're the younger rider and you've got an older rider as a teammate, you think, well, I'm the, I'm going to be the guy for the future, even if right now we're doing this and this. There was lots of reasons for a rider to look at himself as being number one factory rider in any of the factories. Um, and that's maybe what Michael was thinking. It certainly uh, coloured his thinking in terms of being able to mould the project and his image going forward. Um, and a factory like BMW will have the resources. Whether they're making all the right decisions right now or not, probably not. But they're also making a lot of good decisions as well. We'll find out what were the good ones and what were the bad ones if and when the, starts, the thing starts winning. Scott Redding going to BMW, I thought it was more of an image thing. I just thought, wow, Scott Redding on a BMW. They, they, they seem to be, BMW's got a reputation of being quite a staid, straight-laced, very correct you know, middle-of-the-road manufacturer. Um, and then you get Scott, who's, a, the in a good way, the mouthiest rider in the paddock um, and a character and everything else. Outspoken, bit sweary. You know, the, I don't know. A certain while ago, that would have been unthinkable as a factory BMW rider, but here we are. And everybody's excited about that. Um, so there could be, there are going to be two proven current winning riders fighting for the number one spot next year in BMW. Maybe that was part of BMW's thinking to get to get ready again, to get two guys that are hungry, haven't won the championship yet, need to, to for their own ambitions. Um, maybe it's a masterstroke and maybe both of those guys go in there and realise, you know what, we, we'll be able to make this thing a winner. Because on paper, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. There's no, no, to me, there's no great performance problem. There's no great design error going on. And obviously, the other thing is, it's a relatively new bike. So it's not towards the end of its life like the Ducati. You know, it's a new bike. And it's clearly a package, Gordo, that has a lot of potential. Like we heard that from a lot of riders that have jumped onto the bike saying that there is a big step forward made from last year to this year. The big problem for everyone is you've got three manufacturers up at the top right now just have a, a better package than everyone. They've got a package that they know inside out. They've got a package that from week to week, especially with Kawasaki and Yamaha, can be very competitive. Ducati is obviously a little bit more up and down. But all that happens is for both Honda and for BMW is that when the Ducati, Yamaha and Kawasaki are working well, you are 
in that scrap for you know seventh or eighth position rather than you know a few years ago if you had your bike where those two manufacturers have it you probably would have been in the fight for the podiums i think that's where it's been really positive to see over the course of these three rounds the triple header in catalonia Jerez, portimao alvaro bautista on the honda could have had podiums in every round and i think that shows that whenever you get your ducks in a row you can give yourself the chances absolutely the honda's the the perfect example even five or six races ago we were all shaking our heads and talking about the honda thinking wow year two look at that and okay maybe alvaro's having the override maybe he's still riding on the edge where he doesn't know if he's going to fall or finish on the podium but but for a couple of bits of bad luck the weekend they added to the podium total so um yeah you can see where they improve how small of a thing you need to find to get right in amongst the, the podium places um but the, the great thing about superbike now is that people are having to rise the whole level's risen to meet johnny and then go past johnny johnny or the bike or both depending on the track and the, um, which which round we're at the year so that's the good thing. The good thing from our point of view is that people are having to raise their game to compete. It's not like the level of the Kawasaki of the, the traditional forces in the championship have dropped. They're probably running as hard and as, as on the edge as they ever have because everybody's coming up to meet them. But that does make life more difficult for people with new bikes or relatively new bikes that still need development, like the Honda is two years old and the BMW is a year old. You have to find unlimited, very limited testing opportunities as well. Don't forget that. Um, on a production bike, which you just can't, oh, this is a problem, change it. You can't do that for 90% of the stuff on the bike. You've got to run what you have. So it's a very, very big challenge. But A, building the right bike in the first place and B, making it in a race winner against the guys that are already winning on established packages. So it, it takes an awful lot of small things to be competitive. That's what Yamaha, they're the ones that have said it. It's not one big jump they've made it's a thousand small things and look at where they are now that if you're Honda you're seeing the beginnings of that and we've actually seen a win for the BMW okay in the way but that's a win and the Honda on the podium if that's not a sign that someone's working well I don't know what is and obviously enough Gordo as well we saw at the weekend another big thing for World SBK is that if you get everything ready and you've got a good rider, you can get good results. We saw that again with Go 11. They were able to have effectively three podiums with Loris yeah. Baz. He lost out in the last one after a penalty for, for a clash with Bautista. But we saw that if you've got a customer team, you can come in, you can give yourself a good opportunity. If you've got the right rider, an independent team can do well. Yamaha has done that this year, earlier in the year, with Garrett Gerloff. Obviously enough, Loris Baz able to do it this weekend as well. And I think that's really important to be able to see as well. Yeah, I mean, privateers are back. They have been for a lot of while. Um, the reason being is that your privateer bike is basically your factory bike now, with a couple of things changed. Sometimes the choice of the team, because they've got a particular sponsor who's given them money or a, their own technical development or whatever. Um, but ultimately, me and you could go and buy competitive race bikes now from at least three of the five manufacturers. Um, you, you could just do it. You used to be able to do that in the old days with the cat. It's expensive. And expensive engines and overhauls and things, but you could go and buy race winning bikes from Ducati uh, as long as you had people who knew how to run them in the garage. We're getting to that stage now. Um, and Loris, Loris was obviously massively motivated the weekend to come and do well, seeing as how he, he did pretty well in Jerez. He's been on a bike in America which doesn't, uh, they haven't got the tyre to bike um, to obviously ride their experience on those racetracks, race your correct yet. 
but he still put in some good rides. So when he came back to something that was very familiar in World Superbike, he understood the tyres straight away. Uh, the team is obviously showing um, with Rinaldi two years ago, with Chaz this year, um, that the, the bike is actually good and the time, team are good. And when they get everything lined up, they can get those kind of results. The fact he did it three times was very impressive. But let's look at Baz when he last rode the Yamaha Superbike as a privateer, going his own way with his team using lots of different technical solutions on their own. He was on the podium multiple times. So, and fighting up the front all the time. Okay, a few crashes in and again, but Boris Baz is a World Superbike Championship level rider. He's won races. If he was in a factory team, he'd be winning more. Um, so part of me wasn't surprised. When when I heard Loris was coming back, I thought, hmm, anything's possible. Because when Chaz was fit, even on the goal 11 bike, he got a podium. Um, and when he, the setup was right, he was competitive. He's very sensitive to set up Chaz, so it doesn't happen every weekend. But I just knew Loris was going to go well. I didn't know it was going to be quite that good. But I just had a feeling. Um, you know, obviously, didn't make himself any friends with our friend Alvaro Batista, who I haven't seen as angry in a long time. On Sunday night, he wasn't very happy to talk going back to riding standards again. He really was upset at Loris Baz, and Baz was like, well, you know, it's a racing incident. Um, there was two people involved in the incident, totally different views on it. Uh, but again, it's another talking point. It's another uh, compelling reason to, to pay attention to Superbike now. Um, and yeah, I mean, you would feel very aggrieved if you were Batista, but you would also feel, well, what did I do particularly wrong if you were Baz? But great battles, and it just and again with a new bike, and then a privateer bike, both fighting for podiums. It was it was great. And obviously, Gordo, we've got uh, now these final two rounds of the year. We've got Argentina and Indonesia coming up. Argentina next week, and uh, back down to South America. It's the first flyaway we've had since Australia in twenty well 2020 just before the start of the lockdowns and I think this is going to be a real key weekend obviously enough we've got a championship battle that looks like it could go to the wire we've got lots of reasons for optimism going into this round we've also got big question marks as well because this is going to be something very different for the teams it's a couple of years since we went to Argentina a lot's changed for Yamaha since then Toprak hasn't ridden a Yamaha down in Argentina obviously for Kawasaki and for Jonathan Ray they've got a lot of information and data down there Yes, um, you would say that on the face of it, as long as everything else, as far as the track's concerned, if they've fixed all the things in the track's uh, consistent and all the, the issues I had the last time were being sorted, um, and we have a kind of level playing field, you're going to look at it as going, yep, that Johnny seems to be in the best position there because of the, the way it is. There is also a gigantic straight at the back, so that's going to play into the hands of the Ducatis and the, the Honda riders in particular. Um, it will make a difference to people's races if they can't get away in the, in the, the corners. Um, it's a very interesting racetrack in Argentina. It's got some real uh, contrast in, in what it is. Uh, but they, there is no favourites because I think, we're, we're, again, it's been too close to call. We expected Johnny to romp at Portimao. Some people did anyway, and it didn't turn out that way. Um, so we'll see, we'll see where we end up. Uh, when we get to the the end of that weekend, that will be the pivotal weekend. We thought it was going to be Portimao. It nearly was, but it didn't actually turn out that way. We've ended up more or less in the same position as we were. Yeah, you'd have to say, Gordo, that uh, as it is, 
it just keeps rolling on to the next one. And uh, obviously, the longer you're out in front, like Top Rack is, the closer you are to getting across the line for the World Championship. But we also know that Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki know how to get across the line. It's been a long time since Yamaha won a championship. Top Rack hasn't won one since he was in the Stock 600 class. And it's a very different thing when you're up against Jonathan Ray trying to win a championship than whenever you're in the Stock 600 class up against Rinaldi, Caracasulo, Augusto Fernandez. And I think that's where we're going to see something really different because back in his Stock 600 days, Toprick of that championship won very early because he won pretty much, I think was the opening five races of the year. It was only an eight race season. So he's in a very different situation now. We've mentioned earlier on that he's the coolest cat going, but uh, it's different whenever there's a world championship to be won. And uh, I have to say, I can't wait for Argentina. It's going to be really exciting to see what happens down there. What about for yourself, Gordo? You've obviously got to get yourself back to Scotland in the next couple of days and uh, then uh, gear up for, for Argentina, covering covering it from Europe. Yeah, that's the, I'm, I'm a bit sad about Argentina. I'm really glad it's going ahead. And as far as I know it is, although a lot of teams had a lot of problems getting their flights cancelled on them. So they physically have to get everybody there. Once they get everybody there and all the material there, we'll have a we'll have a proper race weekend. It's going to be a, so weird for me because I've been at every single World Superbike race since 1999. I haven't missed a single one. And I'm not going to be in Argentina because for lots of reasons it was just impossible this year, especially coming from UK, etc. It was just going to be too, too much. And it took it, it was a big decision not to go. So I'll be watching it from home um, phoning people, getting info from people. Yeah, I'll be able to cover it, but it's going to be so weird not being there. I mean, I'm just one of these people that thinks you need to go to all the races to, to write about them. Um, and yeah, well, it's going to be too weird for me. I don't, I'm not going to enjoy it, but um, I want to be there. But it just it was it was just not going to happen this year. But what a race the weekend we've got to look forward to. I mean, anything can and probably will happen in Argentina. Um, and I'm amazed, I am genuinely amazed because everybody in the paddock, I mean, basically everybody just thought, well, nobody got it, Argentina. We're going to try and someone will stop it. And as it stands, we're still going. But it wouldn't surprise me if we get a phone call in five minutes to say, uh, no, we're not going. You know, because half the teams can't get there or have been not allowed to get in or something. But if they pull it off, if they actually do end up having this, uh, having these two rounds, fly away at the end of a year like this, hats off to everybody involved because that is an effort. And this is not MotoGP with gigantic budgets. It's just not. It's not the same. It's not It's not apples and apples. Um, so it's going to be a hell of a, a, a thing to, to say, to, to do, to go through. Unfortunately, I won't be there. Um, so yeah, it's going to be a very strange one. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Gordo, I think I'm going to miss you down there because the steak dinners will be something to withhold, to to behold down there. I'm looking forward to getting down into a nice asador and just making sure that nothing's changed since the last time we we're down in Argentina. But it is going to be strange not having you there. Obviously enough, we'll still have a Panacrass podcast from after Argentina and uh, we'll be able to catch up once they get back to Europe after that round. And then that gears us up nicely for the last round of the year, which looks like to be another flyaway out to Indonesia. So you're definitely going to make it to Indonesia, Gordo. Nice couple of weeks on the beach, even if we have a have to do a bit of a quarantine out there I think it's one that probably won't feel like that much of a hardship oh I think um, I've never been to Indonesia I've been to that area of the world a few times um, all racing related but yeah I can't wait to go 
because it's going to be a brand new track. I love a new track, partly because I've been doing this job such a long time. I love to go to a new one because it's something different. Um, it's yeah, there's a lot of question marks and, and obviously there's a lot of uh, any time we go to uh, developing countries and so on, there's always question marks about it. Um, but I think it could be an amazing addition to the calendar if you look at purely the racing side of things. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fully intended going there. I might need to put a few more admin things in place just for safety, insurance, whatever you want to call it. Uh, beforehand, that I just wasn't going to get a chance to do for Argentina. Um, and championship decider, you know, it's another imperative that do I need to go, do I not need to go? Yeah, I want to go and I'm looking forward to going. And I'll, I'm really looking forward to going. I really want to go to a championship decider at a new racetrack. These things are uh, definitely things I want to look forward to. 100% Gordo and uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you once we get back and uh, obviously enough for all of our Paddock Pass podcast listeners we'll be getting everyone up to date on MotoGP over the course of the next few weeks we've got the Mizano round coming up so we're going to have a Moto2 and Moto3 review from Coda upcoming we're going to have obviously this Superbike show we'll have a, a preview for the next round of MotoGP at Mizano we'll have the Argentinian Superbike show we'll also have our Paddock Notes show on Patreon so check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast where for $10 a month you can support the podcast and you can also get a lot of additional content over the course of a MotoGP weekend where Adam, David, Neil and myself sit down on a Zoom call to get everyone up to speed so check that out so until the next time in the Paddock Pass podcast Big thank you to Gordon Ritchie for joining us on the show and a big thank you to everyone for listening to this week's show once again. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. God, I tell you what, Gordo, that doesn't look good now, does it?